This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome Dr. Jim Franks. He's a senior research scientist at the University of Southern Mississippi Gulf Coast Research Lab and studies the big fish of the Gulf. Fish like the bluefin tuna and the tarpon are the subject of his latest research projects, so he's here today to talk about their current situation. And Dr. Major is ready to answer your summertime pet questions. You can join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. I always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Doing good. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Major, let's start off with you. Last week we talked a bit about how to control fleas on dogs. We got an email last Saturday what, what, that was looking for flea control for kittens, and it was uh, looking for natural flea control if possible. First, before we jump into natural flea control, uh, should you be concerned kitten versus uh, cat, puppy versus dog when it comes to flea control? Certainly. Uh, be very careful not to use the common dog products on the cat. Uh, that can cause some serious problems. Uh, as far as kittens, you know, they can. there are a lot of different things out there that you could use. I'm not aware of any of the... Uh, which I'll say natural products that have a lasting effect. Some of them will help and repel fleas. Uh, and we could get into a big discussion about the ones that may or may not work. One of the best that I have right now is Revolution for puppies and kittens. You can put it on very early. We treated some kittens the other day that had many, many fleas uh, with just a small amount of the puppy kitten Revolution, and the fleas were dead within a short period of time. Uh, and the kittens are doing fine. Be very careful on kittens, though, because they're small and uh, certainly can be a problem. But don't use the the canine products on the cat. But they do make special, I guess, uh, uh, medicines for kittens and puppies. And as, you, as your pet gets older, the medicine sometimes, I guess, changes a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit stronger. That's true. And, uh, you know, one of the old standbys back Many, many years ago, I think we even used seven dust on, on cats, you know, just to get, and that was fairly toxic uh, if they were licking much of it. And I'm not recommending that. Uh, the, uh, you know, fleas, are, they're just really mushrooming right now, if you want to use that word. But they're, they're really, uh, the humidity that we've had and the temperature, they seem to enjoy that. And they're out looking for a meal. So just be aware. And uh, there may be some things that can be used in a natural type way, but be very careful with those. 
Uh, I've also found a, a good product at one of the pet stores that you can spray around your house. I think it's called Sentry that uh, actually helps control the fleas, too. So if your pet has them and you're finding out that they're getting around you as well, it's a, a good idea maybe to get some of that uh, uh, um, stuff that you can spray around the baseboards and that sort of thing around your house to help uh, keep the flea population down. Yes, it is important to remember uh, basically, there are three things that you have to think about when you're controlling fleas, especially if you have an established flea problem. One is the pet, of course, and then also the house, uh, the environment there and outside. So it may be that you have to treat all three of those to get the flea problem under control. We've got some early callers to get to. Thanks, folks, for jumping on the lines early to join our program this morning. So let's start with Nate calling in from Collinsville. Good morning, Nate. You're on the air with us. Hey, good morning. How are you? We're doing good. What do you have for us? Well, uh, we recently built a chicken coop in our backyard. We got some eggs uh, in an incubator right now. So we got a couple of weeks until we got to figure everything out completely. Uh, I was wondering mostly about how these chickens are going to do in the heat here we got a uh, tin shed that we're using as the coop itself that we built the run off of and it gets to about 104 degrees in there in the sun and i'm wondering how much heat can the chickens uh, deal with in the coop itself and uh, what we can do to mitigate that dr major start with you any thoughts Yes, uh, certainly the heat can be an issue there. Uh, my, my thing that I would think of, you need to add some some way to circulate air. Uh, it may be that if you have a tin roof, you could use a sprinkler on that roof to reduce the temperature. Uh, when I say sprinkler, I'm talking about a water sprinkler uh, to reduce the temperature somewhat. But a fan will be a big help. Uh, and, of course, it sounds like they're in the direct sun. Uh, under that roof, if if in fact you're getting a temperature of 104, 105, so make sure they have plenty of water, uh, and uh, they they should do okay. But you probably do need some air circulating. Okay, yeah, the run that we have, we we put a roof over that so that they have shade while they're outside um, right. during the day. Um, and inside, we're we're thinking about we're we're trying to figure out a way to put a fan out there as an exhaust fan up high. But um, you're saying they should be okay with that kind of heat if they're kind of in and out of it. And I assume it's going to be colder at night in there. They should be, but uh, uh, are we talking about? <coughs> you have you have adult adult chickens now, right? Uh, they will be uh, adult chicken. They, they're gonna. We're hatching them right now. So uh, once we put them out there, they're gonna be at least a few weeks old by the time we put them out there. Certainly, I, I would think that uh, as new hatchlings, that they need some degree of protection, uh, more like uh, in the 80s or something like that, as opposed to the 90s to the hundreds. Uh, but, yes, mayor circulation would be fine if you have the ability to do that. Uh, I've had chickens before, and they appreciate, during this hot weather, just a, a box fan or a fan that you can have blowing into the uh, area there, and they will crowd around it if it's too hot. Water is very essential. Yes, yeah, we, we plan on uh, making sure they get plenty of water and 
Uh, I've seen uh, suggestions of frozen fruits and vegetables in the water as well, just to kind of keep them occupied. Um, they, they love. Down. They love if you would put a half of a watermelon in. <laughs> they love to pick and work on that, and uh, that would be a All good right. source. And you can put some ice cubes in there uh, as well into that uh, cavity of the watermelon. All right. Hey, uh, Nate, I might suggest also getting in touch with the Cooperative, Cooperative Extension Service and see if they might have some suggestions and some tips for you as well. Will do. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Nate. Uh, let's we uh, will go next to Jim in Madison. Jim, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Um, I have a miniature dachshund who is a rescue that I've had for six or seven years. And um, I've been using my own toenail clippers to clip his nails, but I don't find that very satisfactory. The dog is very, very compliant, actually loves to have his nails clipped, except when I accidentally get into the quick. Um, And I was just wondering if Dr. Majors had a, a recommendation for a particular kind or brand of nail clipper you know i would suggest this and i think it works real well for me is to just trim the tips of those nails and then take a dremel if you have a dremel tool i do have a dremel yeah a sander on it and if if this dog is allowing you to clip the nails okay you can take that dremel and smooth them up one thing that happens when you clip a nail it actually can be sharper for a little while because you have more points on it right. where they side. So I would use a Dremel. They make uh, a small Dremel called, I believe, Petty Paws or other brands. But I like the power of a regular Dremel and don't leave it on any particular nail too long or it might get hot. Right. right. Gotcha. Okay. But that would be an excellent way to do it. That sounds like a great solution. Thank you. Well, Thanks for your call, Jim. It's time for our first break of the hour. When we turn, we'll uh, talk to Dr. Jim Franks. He's our guest today and a senior research scientist at the University of Southern Mississippi Gulf Coast Research Lab. Actually, our producer wants us to get one more call in, so let's do that. Rebecca's on the line from Gulfport. Go ahead, Rebecca. You're on the air with us. Hey, darling. I have an insane cardinal that's been attacking my kitchen window for like three weeks now. We have a reflective film across it. And I've tried covering the window with cloth. He attacks that. I tried putting up pinwheels. He attacks those. He's driving me nuts. <laughs> Libby, any thoughts on that? I've got the same thing, Rebecca, <laughs> in uh, in Paul's office now. So it's been a little bit of a problem. But I continue to put things inside the window that he can see outside, and it will deter him for a while. So I just a continuation of anything I can hang in that window, which is a little bit hard to do to keep changing things. But if you can hang something outside, that helps the most. So if you can go outside that kitchen window and hang something. (laughs) He rips it off. Pardon? Everything we put outside on the window, he rips off. Oh, it's like he wants to see his adversary, huh? And, And it's only that window. We've got reflective film on all the windows on the house, but he only attacks the kitchen window. That's this this cardinal only has this one window that he attacks as well. And when they get obsessive about it, that little bird brain locks in and it is really hard to change their mind. But I think um, I'm sorry to say I can't offer anything new then. 
Um, something that um, makes noise, too, is sometimes a good idea. If there's a way that you could do a um, wind chime or something on the outside of that window, that will help. We'll try. Thank you. Thanks, good Rebecca. Luck. Good to hear from you, Rebecca. We are going to take that break now. And as I mentioned, our guest today is going to be Dr. Jim Franks, Senior Research Scientist at the University of Southern Mississippi Gulf Coast Research Lab. We're going to be talking about the big fish found in the Gulf of Mexico, like the bluefin tuna and the tarpon. So stay tuned. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for this hour, Dr. Jim Franks, a senior research scientist at the University of Southern Mississippi Gulf Coast Research Lab. You can join our conversation with your phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. So, Dr. Franks, thanks for joining us this morning. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, good morning, Kevin. Uh, it's a pleasure to be part of the program this morning. I've listened to this for many years, and it's an honor to be there on the program with you, uh, Libby, and uh, Dr. Major. Well, uh, yes, as you said, I, I am a research scientist, a fisheries biologist at the USM Gulf Coast Research Lab. I'm in the Fisheries Center at the Center for Fisheries Research and Development. I've been a part of this uh, for many years. I, well, I've, I guess more than 40 years I've been fortunate to be part of the uh, research team here at the Gulf Coast Research Lab. and. We've studied many things over the years. Uh, you know, we, we focus on a lot of coastal uh, species, you know, the oysters, crabs, shrimp, their habitats. But occasionally we also have the opportunity to venture far offshore to, to try to understand some of the uh, biology of the great fish that live in the Gulf of Mexico, fish that, that are not well understood. But occasionally we do have the opportunity. We're funded to do that sort of work. And it's exciting, uh, exciting work offshore. And as uh, you said earlier today, I'd like to talk a bit with you all and try to answer any questions you might have about tuna and tarpon. Of course, those are two of the most majestic creatures we have in the Gulf of Mexico, about which we don't know much, but we're learning. Uh, so I appreciate this opportunity to, to be with you today. Thank you. So before we t uh, jump into your research projects, tell us a little bit about your motivation to become a marine biologist. Uh, well, I um, grew up in Tennessee. Of course, I was uh, very interested in uh, fishing and spent a lot of time around the rivers and the creeks. Had an opportunity to come to Ocean Springs back in the mid-60s, yep, a long time ago, uh, as a student, as a college student, to take a course in marine science at the Gulf Coast Research Lab. Well, that just changed my life, uh, Kevin. That, that opened up a whole new world for me. I realized that's what I wanted to do, and so that's uh, I've been engaged in uh, 
the study of marine fish and the marine environment, particularly the Gulf of Mexico, since that time. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and our guest this hour is Dr. Jim Franks, Senior Research Scientist at the USM Gulf Coast Research Lab. You have questions about uh, the fish that we'll be talking about, the the big ones in the Gulf of Mexico, the bluefin tuna and the tarpon. Give us a call. Dr. Major is ready to take your pet questions as well. Again, that phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So tell us if you would a little bit about the research projects that you have going on. Why don't we start uh, with the bluefin tuna? Yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, of course, <clears throat> this is one of the largest fish in the ocean. Uh, these fish often get up to 1,800 pounds and can be 12 to 15 feet long, and they do occur in the Gulf of Mexico, just south of us here. Um, not a great deal was known about these fish until recent decades. Um, they were uh, highly salt and remain to be highly salt as a food fish. Uh, very little was known about them uh, until maybe the, the last couple of decades. Uh, back in the day, uh, these big tunas would be caught by the offshore fishermen, and they called them horse mackerel, uh, I guess. Because they were so large, but no one found them very uh, edible. They were not they were not salt for food. Well, that's changed over recent time. Of course, in the sushi market opening up, they've become one of the most valuable fish in the ocean. And as a result of that, they've been severely overfished, uh, not only in the Gulf but in other parts of the Atlantic Ocean. So the the real name for this fish is the Atlantic bluefin tuna. Uh, they spend most of the time as adults over in the Atlantic Ocean, but early in the year, maybe January or February, these great fish undergo a long-range migration, often from as far as Nova Scotia, all the way down the Atlantic coast and enter the Gulf of Mexico specifically to spawn. We've learned that the Gulf of Mexico is the spawning location for these great fish. So they come into the Gulf, uh, they spend two or three months here, uh, they spawn, and then they exit the Gulf. In fact, this is just now about the end of their spawning season. So they'll be exiting the Gulf at this point, going out between uh, Key West and Cuba, uh, entering the Atlantic Ocean and spending the rest of the year swimming around the Atlantic Ocean up toward Nova Scotia where they feed. Uh, and it was that migration that interested us so much in wanting to know why they come into the Gulf and once here, where do they spawn? And how important is it to learn that? Uh, so that's part of some of the work that we've been doing is trying to better understand where these great fish spawn, um, at what age do they spawn, how old do they live to be, and what are the requirements for them to be successful spawners in the Gulf of Mexico? Have you done any research or is there any uh, information about what it is about the Gulf of Mexico that attracts them and, and has this thing where they do migrate down here to spawn? Are the conditions in the Gulf uh, favorable to spawning? Uh, yes, Kevin, that's that's what we think. The conditions in the Gulf are perfect for these fish to spawn in uh, because uh, their larvae, their babies, you might want to call them, uh, have requirements that are met very nicely by the Gulf. 
uh, this time of year. The waters are warm. There's plenty of food for the little guys. Uh, they grow rapidly, and uh, once they reach uh, a juvenile size, just a few months later, uh, we rarely see those fish again. They exit the Gulf. We believe they go over into the Atlantic where they spend a few years until they mature. And then as adults, they come back into the Gulf and they spawn where they were spawned, which is very interesting. Um, we think there's certain oceanic conditions in the Gulf that are, that are highly sought by these adults when they come in the Gulf. Uh, there are certain currents, certain temperature locations, certain areas that are always uh, capable of providing enough food for the young. These big fish have figured this out. They've been doing this for many, many, many years of time. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to see and a wonderful thing to, uh, to witness. And the reason that uh, we know some of this is because we do take our research vessels offshore. Uh, we have in the past to uh, seek these young fish, these young larvae, we call them. They're only a few days old. And when we find them, uh, then we, we have a better feel for what's required for them to survive and also what conditions the adults chose as that's the place where they want to spawn and give their young a good chance, a good head start on life. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got another caller on the line, so now we're going to say good morning to Mike in Tupelo. Mike, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning, uh, Dr. Franks. I was going to ask you about the research that was done in the past on cobia, uh, where y'all were raising and spawning them, and I wanted to see what status of that project was and see how it turned out. Oh, thank you, Mike. Yes, we've we've worked with cobia at the lab for many years, and of course, when I say we, I've been fortunate enough over the many years to work with a great team of people there at our, at our Gulf Coast Research Lab, so we're all involved in this. It's a team effort where we're able to accomplish some of this research. Yeah, cobia is one of our favorite fish, of course. Uh, we spent many years better understanding its life history, you know, where it spawned, why, how old they grew uh, to be. And part of that study also supported some of the aquaculture work that we did. Um, our lab's not engaged in cobia aquaculture at this point, but cobia aquaculture has become a very uh, prominent um component of aquaculture around the world and there are cobia farms uh, where large numbers of cobia are being raised in big offshore cages offshore pens that float out into the ocean off south america i believe there was one off uh, uh, in the caribbean uh, there are others scattered around the warm waters of the world so cobia has become a very popular food fish you'll see it on the menus much of that uh, much of that fish you see on the menus, of course, are aquacultured. Uh, in Mississippi, cobia is really our only designated saltwater game fish. In other words, it's highly sought by sport fishermen here along the coast, anglers, uh, but there's no commercial catch. So it's been protected here uh, by being given a game fish status. But yeah, cobia is a great fish. Aquaculture is still well underway in some parts of the world. Well, thank you for all the hard work on that. I'm a recovering fish farmer from long ago, and uh, I know all the hard work that went into that. And the Gulf Coast Research Lab is a is a resource that's underappreciated here in Mississippi. So thanks for for being on the show and and uh, MPB for shining a light on this facility. 
Oh, well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that so much. All right, Mike, thanks for your call. We've got some open phone lines if you'd like to call in at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So we touched a little bit about the bluefin tuna. Uh, let's talk a little about about some of the things that uh, share the Gulf with the bluefin tuna. And I think, uh, Dr. Franks, a lot of folks are interested in sharks. So spend a couple of minutes, if you would, telling us about the sharks found in the Gulf uh, uh, along the Gulf Coast. Well, sure. Uh, you know, a lot of folks don't understand, don't realize actually how many species of shark we do have in the Gulf. We have many different species in the Gulf. We have some of the smaller shark species, and then we have the large, the largest of the sharks. Um, we have the whale sharks. You know, they get up to several, maybe a tons, and 25, 30 feet long, 35 feet long. They do exist in the Gulf. Uh, we've seen the small, uh, the smaller sharks that are intriguing, and usually uh, many of those species live in deep waters. But the whale shark is is a fascinating creature. We've studied those for years. I personally have been on a small boat right next to one of these giants that sort of dwarfed our boat. But they're very gentle uh, fish. They're a shark, but they essentially have no teeth Hmm. or very small teeth. They're filter feeders. So uh, it's an amazing creature. Uh, They'll just swim right up to you, and uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Our team has successfully over the years attach satellite trackers to whale sharks in the Gulf. We're presently working on writing a a scientific paper on our findings. It's pretty amazing. They move all over the Gulf. Some even go into the Caribbean, we think. Uh, But, you know, the largest fish in the sea occurs right here off Mississippi, and we really knew very little about it until just a few years ago. Uh, We've got another caller online, and it's our friend Sue who calls in from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I'd like to ask Dr. Franks a question. Or a couple of questions. Have y'all ever tried to tag any of those tuna to see exactly where they travel? Do they ever go into the Pacific Ocean, for instance? Uh, Sue, we haven't done that, but uh, some colleagues of mine have done that. In fact, I, I have a, a conference call this afternoon with one of our uh, colleagues out in the uh, University of California, uh, sorry, at Stanford, uh, who has placed satellite tags on many bluefin tuna around the world. Uh, we do know uh, from the satellite tagging data that uh, they do uh, migrate, as I mentioned earlier, uh, from the northern Atlantic into the Gulf and then depart the Gulf. Occasionally, they'll even cross the Atlantic and go toward the Mediterranean. Uh, similar work has been done in the Mediterranean, where there are huge numbers of big fish over there, big uh, bluefin tuna, uh, even though on both sides of the Atlantic they're still overfished. Uh, those fish will swim across the Atlantic occasionally and come into the uh, and come into the, our part of the uh, Atlantic and, and the northern Atlantic and mix around. But yes, the satellite tags and where they go, they do not go into the Pacific. Oh, they don't. They have to no, go through the Panama is, Canal, huh? No, they don't go through the canal. <laughs> but there is a there is a, a Pacific bluefin tuna that's just about the same size as. Um, the Atlantic, and as I said earlier, some of the ones in the Atlantic can get up to 1,800 pounds. Uh, that's a different species over there, but they don't mix. Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. Uh, I've listened to a lot of National Geographic, and they say that, I've heard this many times, they say that one, either the Pacific or the Atlantic, one or the other, is 
one is a little bit saltier than the other. Why is that, do you think? Well, the waters eventually mixed up together somehow through circulation, but yeah, the Pacific is considered to be probably a little higher, higher salt content. It's just a massive ocean. Uh, the Atlantic, of course, you know, has so many rivers flowing into it uh, that probably has something to do with that. Or certainly around the coastlines, but you look at the wide Pacific, that open wide Pacific. It's just such a huge place. The currents are there that. Uh, continually circulate the salinity and the temperature. It's just a different environment. But, yeah, it's probably a little higher saline in some parts uh, of the Pacific rather than the Atlantic. But the Atlantic also has certain areas that are highly saline as well. And the animals in both places have adapted to living under those conditions. All right, Sue, thanks for your call. Always good to hear from you. It's time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion with our guest, Dr. Jim Franks. We'll also focus on the terrapin when we get back and continuing talking about the bluefin tuna and other fish found in the Gulf of Mexico. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org or on your smart devices podcasting platform. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest for the hour, Dr. Jim Franks, senior research scientist at the USM Gulf Coast Research Laboratory. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. And if you ever miss any of today's show, you can subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast app, or you can download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone. We'll have more discussion about the, the creatures living in the Gulf of Mexico with our guests, but it looks like we've got a couple of uh, pet questions on the line. So let's start with Nora in Long Beach. Good morning, Laura. Uh, Nora. Go ahead, please. Good morning. I have a small mixed breed dog that just seems to scratch all the time. Um, I've tried Benadryl. I've tried Claritin. The vet currently has the dog on Apoquel. Um and that does the trick, but you know, it just, it, the price of the Apoquel keeps going up. I'm, I'm just looking for another alternative. You know, excellent questions. And we see a lot of it, that, and it may be an allergy of sorts. Is it more seasonal than, uh, or is it year round? It's year round. And, and I've had a house with, with um, carpet and I've had a house with, you know, um, hardwood floors, and I don't think that's an issue. Right, and you've probably tried uh, different foods. I have. I'm I'm almost convinced that the the makers of the food are putting something in there to make them scratch. So I'll buy Apoquel. What do you think? Ah, <laughs> uh, Apoquel has, has gone up in price. You're right. There is another drug. Now, Apoquel is good from the standpoint that it is non-steroidal. Uh, it does not have as much effect, uh, say, on the body. And some of the steroids, which sometimes steroids are essential. However, you might talk to your vet about a drug called Ciderpoint. He may have already mentioned it, or she may have no. already. No, what's it called? Ciderpoint? C-Y-T-O-P-O-I-N-T, okay. Ciderpoint. Uh, it's an injection that's given. 
Again, it's non-steroidal. Uh, it works with the uh, immune system, and it usually lasts four to six weeks. I have a large dog that uh, I have to give it occasionally because she will chew her feet and, and lick a lot. When mm-hmm. I give it, after about two days, she stops doing that and leaves them alone. This time it's lasted for six weeks. I don't know that I don't see any sign that I'm going to have to repeat it right now. So hers may be seasonal, but talk to your vet about Cytopoint and see if that might help. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Nora, for your call. Let's uh, move on next. It's uh, V calling in from Waynesboro. V, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, my question is, I have a pit bull. He's on the outside about three years old, but every once in a while he coughs. Okay. Tell me uh, what you think it might be. Right. Is it, the cough. is it kind of an occasional thing? Occasional. It's a deep yeah. cough. Right. Okay. First question you always have to ask, you have him on heartworm preventive and he's free of heartworms? I don't. Okay. You know, that's that's one thing that can cause a cough. It can cause other symptoms as well. Uh, also, uh, I realize we've had a lot of rain, but he may be allergic to something in the yard or a dust-type situation. I would recommend getting him into your vet and let them do a heartworm test. You really need to get this dog on heartworm preventive. Uh, if he's positive for heartworms, they can discuss that with you. That could be the source of cough. I have a lot of dogs will lick and chew, and they will develop a transitory pharyngitis or maybe sore throat, you could call it, but sometimes they will cough and gag. So my recommendation to you is to please get the dog in to the veterinarian. All right, David, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with our guest, Dr. Jim Franks, Senior Research Scientist at the USM Gulf Coast Research Lab. Uh, so, Dr. Franks, uh, we talk about, we're talking about the bluefin tuna and hope to talk a little bit about the terrapin uh, as well. And you said the bluefin can get up to 1,800 pounds. Give us an idea of the, 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 how large these things are, you know, size uh, in terms of some of these big, big creatures in the Gulf. Well, yeah, uh, those the bluefin is is uh, just a huge fish, and they they reach maturity, oh, probably about eight or nine years old, and they live to be as old as forty, and uh, can get up to almost two thousand pounds and about twelve to fifteen feet long. That is a big fish. Um, I've examined. I think the largest one I've ever examined was about eight hundred pounds. Um, just an astounding animal when you stand next to something that big. Um, the, the thing I wanted to tell you, too, very quickly is that they are protected in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, during their season, their spawning season, when they're in the Gulf, they cannot be uh, caught and landed. Uh, there is a restriction against that. And also, uh, there's no commercial fishing in the Gulf of Mexico for bluefin tuna because this is their spawning ground. Mm-hmm. Now, they're caught in the Atlantic but you cannot commercially catch bluefin tuna in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but, yeah, they're, they're among the largest fish in the ocean, that's for sure. All right, uh, let's talk about another one, and uh, tell us about the blue marlin. Oh, the blue marlin. Well, we, we have some studies that we've conducted on the blue marlin as well. And, in fact, uh, <clears throat> we're part of a team 
that actually is in the process right now of attaching satellite uh, devices, satellite trackers, to big blue marlin in the Gulf. Uh, we want to understand their migration patterns, uh, where they spend most of their time, uh, how they behave. You know, do they stay at the surface a lot? Do they dive, undergo these great deep dives? And what about their migration patterns? Do they leave the Gulf? And if so, where do they go? So that project is ongoing right now. Uh, we're doing that in concert with the uh, Billfish Foundation and a number of uh, <clears throat> offshore boat operators uh, who, who are working with our laboratory team on that right now. But that's a great fish. Uh, there was a recent uh, fishing tournament this past weekend where over uh, 100 uh, blue marlin were caught and released. These were not sacrificed. These were caught by the teams offshore fishing and released them all which is pretty interesting and a good conservation measure, in my, my opinion. I hate to do it, but every time we talk about an animal that shares its name with a sports team, I have to say that I'm sure there are a bunch of Marlins down there near Miami where the baseball team is. But, okay, sorry about that. <laughs> I just feel that's my... Uh, that, well, that's, that's exactly what that is, sure. <laughs> um Let's uh, let's. We've got to looks like we got another pet question. Let's get to that before this next break. And it's Lynn in Daphne. Go ahead, Lynn. You're on the air with us. Oh, hi. I have a female um, small dog who has the current uh, bladder infection, and her her uh, urine cultured. And they they know the um, the bug that's doing it, but they can't seem to get rid of it. And I wonder if you've run into that. Okay. And if they cultured it, I wonder uh, what antibiotic uh, it was sensitive to. They usually do a culture and sensitivity. Uh, do you right. know? They, was it E. coli? That, no, it wasn't E. coli. It was uh, entero something. Okay. Enterococcus. And, and they said that uh, Clavamox was the, was the best uh, antibiotic, and she's been on several rounds of it. And uh, about ten days after she's off it, she gets another infection. Uh, and this has been going on since uh, November. Okay, you know that's it, it. can get to be a serious thing, and uh, some of the uh, bacteria become resistant depending on what antibiotic you've given. I think it'd be wise to reculture and do another culture and sensitivity. And see, there's got to be some way to get this. How about her kidney values as far as blood or BUN? We haven't done blood work. Do you think that would be the best thing I to think do next? I, I think I would just to be sure of what's going on to give you a better picture overall. And uh, it may be wise possibly also to have an ultrasound done of the bladder and kidneys, you know, just to be sure. So, okay, I know she had, she had an ultrasound of the, of the bladder, and that didn't give us any, any information. Okay. So, okay. Well, good, good luck, and I would, I would go back to the drawing board, so to speak, but something needs to be done if it's a recurrent uh, infection, okay? Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Lynn, for that call. It's time for our last break this hour. During this hour, we've been talking to Dr. Jim Franks, Senior Research Scientist at the USM Gulf Coast Research Lab. When we get back, we'll wrap up the show with a discussion of the tarpon, another fish found in the Gulf of Mexico. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Back with more after this. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield and Dr. Jim Franks, who's our guest for the hour. He is the senior research scientist at the USM Gulf Coast Research Lab. So we've been talking about some of the big creatures in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so, Dr. Franks, let's uh, transition our discussion now to the, terp- the tarpon. Uh, first, if you could, uh, for those of us that might not know what one is, uh, can maybe give us sort of a, a physical description. I guess it's another big fish in the Gulf. Uh, that's that's right, Kevin. Uh, and, and right now, uh, let me first of all just give a, a much appreciated shout out to these different groups that uh, support our research and make it possible. Uh, the bluefin tuna work I just mentioned very quickly. Uh, of course, a lot of that work is funded by uh, uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service and our Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. Um, we always appreciate that. And this, uh, the tarpon, uh, the, the, the fish I'm going to talk just a bit about now, that research is, is ongoing. And it's also funded by the uh, Mississippi Department of Marine Resources through their Tidelands Trust Fund program and also through some of the local fishing clubs. So we get a lot of support. Well, this tarpon is another big fish, like you said, uh, Kevin, but it occurs more coastally. Um, it can reach sizes of uh, the world record, I think it's almost 300 pounds. Biggest one we've seen in Mississippi, though, is about 185 pounds. That's the current state record, and that was established last summer. But tarpon in Mississippi are severely managed, and there's a restriction on the catch. They're such a important fish. Uh, we think they're overfished, so they need protection. So uh, uh, the DMR, the Department of Marine Resources, manages them rather severely uh, with a size limit. No large, you can't catch a fish, you can't catch a tarpon and keep it any uh, smaller than 75 inches in fork length, and that's about 185, 190 pounds. So that's a good protective measure for all the young fish that we now think are uh, growing and uh, surviving in our coastal estuaries. This is part of our study now, is to understand how well the young fish are doing uh, from the time they're only a few days old till maybe they're a couple of years old, how well they're doing up in our coastal estuaries and in our marshes. That's an important thing to know, and that's a study we are funded to do at this time. So uh, tell us what an estuary is. Well, the Mississippi uh, estuary, we think of in terms is of the Mississippi Sound estuary, which is the uh, the body of water that's uh, along the coastline in front of our state uh, that includes um, the uh, waters of the Mississippi Sound, the uh, the bows, the uh, the creeks, the uh, bays, all of the area uh, adjacent to the mainland and inland running up toward the rivers that create this fantastic ecosystem we have here called the Mississippi Sound Estuary, Mississippi Sound Ecosystem. It's one of the most productive, uh, biologically rich areas of the world, and we're very proud that we we were able to study uh, this estuary and its magnificent marine life here along our Mississippi Gulf Coast. And you mentioned the importance of the terrapin, uh, the tarpon. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, uh, 
very quickly. Uh, very little is known about this fish. Uh, I found a lot of historic data about tarpon uh, that dated back to the 1910s, 1920s, where they were greatly abundant here in our coastal waters. And then about 1950, all around the Gulf of Mexico, those numbers became radically diminished. We're not quite sure what happened there, but it's, it's true, and only recently have we, have we understood uh, that that might have been related to uh, increased uh, development along the coastlines, perhaps some decreased water uh, quality, but we think the water quality is getting better. We're beginning to see some of those big fish come back, and we're also beginning to see greater numbers of their small uh, the small, the juveniles and their larvae and the juveniles, the young fish up in the estuaries. So we're trying to better understand the relationship of the current conditions with what we hope is a resurgence of the tarpon population here in Mississippi. You know, on land, a lot of times when we talk about uh, animals that are threatened, it, it comes down to habitat and efforts to kind of uh, give them back their habitat or, or, or ways to kind of re-strengthen the population. And I'm wondering if maybe when we talk about fish and other things uh, in the sea, in the gulfs, uh, that maybe, as you mentioned, water quality is an important thing. And it's something, I guess, that man can, uh, if, if they damage, can then undo and help improve water quality. No, that's exactly right, and that that's uh, you know many, over the last many decades, a lot of efforts have been put into to try to uh, conserve and preserve our coastal wetlands, and uh, there, by doing that, it, we we think that it does improve the water quality and therefore habitat for many of these amazing marine creatures that live along the Mississippi coast. So you're right, Kevin. It's all tied into uh, high quality habitat, good water conditions. And, uh, it, you know, that it's, it's better for not only animals, but it's, um, it increases the opportunity for uh, the, the uh, fish, fishermen, the uh, commercial and the recreational fishermen, to uh, do their harvest under uh, specific regulations and guidelines. Uh, it enables them to conduct their livelihoods, and also it provides great opportunity for uh, sport. So all these things are tied to an improved uh, and a much better uh, uh, developing uh, coastal habitat system uh, that really uh, provides for a much higher quality environment. And when you talk about some of the research projects, and again, sort of comparing this to things we've talked about on the show uh, on terrestrial animals, there's a way to tag and track uh, birds and animals and that sort of thing. Is it similar for fish? Are you able to sort of temporarily round them up and, and somehow tag them to help trace uh, their movement? Great question, Kevin. Yes, in fact, that, that is exactly what, uh, what we do. Uh, we're in the process of tagging a number of fish species to understand uh, you know, how much, how, how much they grow, uh, where they go, uh, what habitats they prefer. And this is interesting uh, in the fact that we have recruited a lot of volunteer anglers along the coast to help us do this. Uh, they're on the water much more than we could be out there. We have currently have several hundred volunteer anglers who uh, provided the tagging equipment that we provide them through our grant. And they actually do a lot of the tagging with us, provide us with their data. And that's one way we keep track of what all these wonderful fish are doing is through a, a collaborative cooperative program with the local uh, local anglers. 
Uh, got less than a minute left. Uh, is there a way that uh, people who are interested in uh, the marine life of the Gulf can learn more about it? Or is there a website perhaps uh, for, the, for your lab? Uh, yes, the best way to do this would be to uh, to uh, go to, um, uh, you can do several things. One is the Gulf Coast Research Laboratory. Just uh, You can Google that. That will bring you to our location. Um, you can also uh, search for the Center for Fisheries Research and Development, the University of Southern Mississippi Center for Fisheries Research and Development. That will take you to... Uh, some of the work that we're doing, and in particular, we've just developed a new website for these tagging programs, uh, Kevin, that we just chatted about. So there are ways to find us at the Gulf Coast Research Lab in Ocean Springs and uh, to see all the great work we're doing. There are many people who are engaged in many studies. And, uh, we- All right, we're pressed for time, so that's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Jim Franks, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned, because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio.